Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mark for Glory podcast. This is episode number 21. I have the pleasure today of speaking with a woman who I've known for a long time casually through Facebook, but we never really, I mean, we've chatted back and forth, but never really talked face to face. So I'd like to introduce Rhonda Folds. Hi, Rhonda. Hi, Mark. How are you today? I'm blessed. Um, I was tempted to make your intro music, Help Me Rhonda by the Beach Boys, but, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think, uh, their, uh, their record company or, or whoever is in charge of the stuff would like that or <laughs> probably get sued, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, um, anyways. I wondered if we could start off with a brief introduction. Um, well, it doesn't have to be too brief. Uh, just telling people who you are and uh, your background a bit. Um, sure. Can go as far back as you're willing to. Okay, sure. Um, I'm Rhonda Folds, as Mark said, and um, I was born in a, a small town in upstate New York called New Berlin and um, grew up like most other, most other kids. Um, I'm close to 60 years old, so played outside a lot and um, didn't grow up with technology. Um, I had pretty much normal upbringing. And then um, I was married and had three boys, three children, and moved to Texas uh, in 95. And we've been here ever since. I live kind of north of Fort Worth, Texas. Um, did you want to know? Do people want to know like when I was diagnosed and like that? Sure, all of that stuff. Um, I was actually, I was a runner um, prior to my diagnosis, but just casual runner. And I had thought that I might try to run the Dallas Marathon as my first marathon. So I was training, this was probably, I'm thinking in 1998, and I was training um, to run the Dallas Marathon. And I'd only gotten up to maybe around five miles, but that's when I first started to notice my symptoms. And of course, I had no idea that it was Parkinson's. I thought maybe I was training too hard, that I wasn't getting enough sleep. Um, I had a tremor in my jaw and in my right pinky. Um, and they were starting to become more and more annoying. So um, my husband actually said he, he sometimes he would follow me on his bike. And he said, you know, you're dragging your right leg a little bit. And I when I got home, I had noticed that my one of my running shoes uh, had a lot more wear on the bottom on the right hand side. And so I thought, well, you know, this is odd. So uh, that started me on my journey to find out what was wrong. And I went to several different doctors. Um, basically my diagnosis came along pretty quickly. Um, the first doctor that saw me was actually just a regular PCP and he thought I might have Parkinson's. And I thought, there's no way, this is crazy. I was 35. Um, so I thought there was no way. And then they sent me to Presbyterian in Dallas, one of the big hospitals here and um, a uh, neurologist there actually diagnosed me with Parkinson's. 
And that was probably about a year after that. Um, and that kind of set up, set up um, depression, sadness, you know. I mean, I still had three little kids at home at the time, worked full time. Um, and there wasn't really a lot known at that time about exercise and Parkinson's. So I didn't know that I would be able to help myself. Um, it was, it was kind of like, they just said, well, here's some medicine, go home, take this and, you know, basically wait to die. I mean, that's how I felt. Um, my grandfather and, and my father both had Parkinson's. So I knew that it was, that it was not good. Um, but that was quite a long time ago and things have changed a lot. So um, then in 2004, I was about five or six years into my diagnosis. Um, I found out about deep brain stimulation. And that's when I uh, started to look and um, study about it, find out about it and ask people that had had it. Um, and I decided that that would be best for my, where I was in life and what I wanted to be able to do. And my neurologist actually thought that people that were my age would greatly benefit from it. And now that I've had it for 17 years, I, I agree. Um, I think because I was younger when I had it done, it's actually helped a lot, um, a lot more than, than if I hadn't had it for sure. Um, so, go ahead, I'm sorry. Um, you're, you're dog, since you were diagnosed at 35, is that, is that young, is that YOPD young onset? Yes, um, they considered it young onset Parkinson's. I believe it's anybody under the age of 50. Maybe it's even 55, I'm not sure. But um, I think normal age, uh, statistically wise, I think is like um, mid 60s for people that are diagnosed. It's really actually a small percentage of people that have young onset just probably seems like more to somebody like me because I've met so many people that have young onset Parkinson's through the community um, since I was diagnosed. So it seems like a lot of people, but it really isn't. It's a small majority of people. So, so uh, when did you, so, I mean, I, I guess I'm just saying this in my experience, and from listening to other people understand depression and that stuff never truly goes away. But it does. when did you start, you know, that initial phase after diagnosis and that sort of dark cloud looming over your head, when did that start to go away? Uh, it was actually due to my doctor. Um, I, I was very sad and apathetic. And I have since realized that most of those things are related to Parkinson's because of lack of dopamine in your brain. And dopamine is kind of like a feel good chemical and without it or without a majority of it, it's very difficult to just feel happy, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was sad and despondent and upset and this was even after the DBS. The DBS didn't really help with depression. It helped with movement and uh, freezing and things like that. 
But as far as the mental side of it, um, depression and apathy, it did not help with those things. So after I had the DBS, I went back to the neurologist for a regular checkup. And the doctor said to me, he was a, he's around my age. And so he was young then too. And he said, um, you are, you need to look at your life as if you didn't have Parkinson's and what you want to do with your life and basically stop pouting and feeling sorry for yourself. And it worked for me because I'm kind of a competitive person at heart. And so I, I was mad at him and I thought, you know, how dare he say, he also said I was, I was really overweight, which I was at that time, because I was feeling sorry for myself. I wasn't getting up and moving around a lot. And he said, you're way too young and you're way out of shape. He said, you need to get up out of the chair and do things. And I was like, I thought, who is he, you know, to say, say these things to me, but it was actually the best thing that he could have said to me because I went home and I started a weight loss program and I started running again. Um, and I actually pulled myself up and it's not, as you know, it's not easy. It it's, it's something you have to fight against every day, the apathy, but in my mind, I just thought I have these three young kids and I want to have the best opportunity for them and for me to have a good life. So I started trying to look at things differently and join the communities that on Facebook and in social media so that I could meet other people that had it and see what they were doing to try to fight Parkinson's. Um, and it, it worked for me. And so it's not like I don't still have difficulties um, trying to inspire myself to do things, but I'm much better than I was before. Great. And um, you mentioned deep, uh, DBS or deep brain simulation. For people listening or watching that may not know what that is, could you explain it a bit more? Sure. Um, it is called deep brain stimulation. And what is done, I don't, I remember when I had it done, they weren't even exactly sure why it works exactly. It interrupts the signals that cause, the, from what they think anyway, it interrupts the signals that cause shaking and imbalance. Um, and it depends, you can have the, the wires are placed either in the uh, substantia nigra, which is where mine were placed, or in what they call a GPI. So it, it depends on what your symptoms are, um, where they place the wires. But there's, there's um, they drill two, well, with me, I had bilateral deep brain stimulation. So I had both sides done because both sides of my body were affected. Um, so I had a hole drilled in each side, kind of like level with your eyes, but on top of your head. Um, and they do it while you're awake so that you, they can see if your movements are improved when they, turn, when they turn it on. And there's a battery pack that I have here in my chest. I did have two at one time because the technology has gotten so much better over the years. Um, I used to have to have the batteries replaced so I was having a surgery just about every year. And now I have a rechargeable battery, one. And what they do is they run wires inside of your head and they come down behind your ears and they're connected to the battery pack. 
and you have a constant signal of electricity um, that runs through your brain and, and helps with movement. So it's a bit like a pacemaker, but for your brain. Yes, it actually looks like a pacemaker and it's kind of in the same general area. Yeah. So, but yeah, technology has, has come a long ways. Uh, in the beginning, I had, all I had to turn the battery on and off was a big magnet. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I would also have, um, my battery would sometimes be turned off when I would walk through those uh, things at the store you know, those big uh, security arches that they have, I would sometimes in the beginning have it turned off by those or like you go to the airport and have to walk through the thing and it would shut it off. So um, they've really come a long way since I had the first surgery done and that was in 2004. So everything's gotten smaller and faster. And so um, I've had several revisions to the system okay. as well. Right. So, um, so if you like uh, needed to get an upgrade or something, how like what's involved with that? Did they have to? Is it they will the same thing? Eventually, you know, I've had several brain surgeries because I had a broken wire and they couldn't figure out where it was. So every time I would turn my head, I would get an electric shock on the left side of my head, like in my neck right here. So I I couldn't drive or anything because I would get this, this zing. Well, they couldn't find the broken wires. They had to go in and take everything out. And that was, um, that the last surgery I had for this was in 2014 and they actually replaced everything. Um, and that's when I got the, I got the, um, rechargeable battery and had the other one taken out. Um, now I have a rechargeable, it, it's like a plate that lays over it. Kind of like when you recharge your cell phone with a um, wireless charger. It's like that. And it charges the battery. But um, yeah, I, I will eventually, again, have to have, you know, I have to have this battery replaced probably this next year, because I've had it in eight years now. So um, it, it will eventually die down and they'll have to put another one in. And I don't know how long my wires will last because I'm one of the I've, I've had DBS one of the longest that they, that they have. Um, so they don't really know how long the wires will last. Um, well, you know. sometimes that's a good thing though, because back then they actually made quality things. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want it to be like a new age microwave that they have to change every year, you know, <laughs> that yeah. these, these awful appliances that we have now. <laughs> So, right. Yeah, you're right. They don't really know how long the wiring will last. So I'm hoping that my body doesn't break it down too much <laughs> or what that will involve, you know, as far as like, how will I know when it just stops working? I hope it's not that I'm up on a chair or something and, you know, it just gives up. <laughs> I don't really know, but. Yeah. Um. So how did the uh, DBS impact um your symptoms and uh, how did you feel afterwards as compared to before well it was um it was about a month before i had it turned on so it was placed but they knew that they had it in the right spot because um of the what the test that they did during the surgery 
Um, they knew that when they would turn it on, that my shaking would stop. I have no tremors at all anymore. Um, I still have um, dyskinesias um, that are caused because I can't quite figure out my medication with the system. I never really have been able to, but I was having freezing as well. And that has completely stopped. So um, it, it really is like a miracle for me. My voice got quieter um, and that, that made my family happy. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding about that, but, but, you know, I really can't yell anymore. I can't sing. I don't have a lot of volume to my voice, but I've also taken those big and loud classes where they, they teach you how to use your voice. So that has actually gotten a little bit better. Um, but as far as the symptoms of Parkinson's, I so much better. I couldn't walk when I went into um, the neurologist office to have it turned on about a month after the surgery. And when they turned it on, um, I got up out of the chair and walked and that had been the first time I'd walked in a month. So um, it was, it was really like a miracle for me. What did that feel, feel like? It was awesome. I mean, it's when they, when they turn the system on, it's uh, from being completely off. It's a very weird feeling. It sends electricity, like what, what feels like electricity through your body. And it, it's hard to explain. You would have, you'd have to, I've always said, I, I can't really even explain what it feels like. It's like, it wakes you up, it, but it's a very weird feeling too. It's like falling off a cliff during a dream. You're, you're not sure what's going to happen. So you're kind of apprehensive. But um, when they first turned on, I was like, I remember my husband looked at me and he said, what's going on? I can tell something's going on. And I couldn't say anything because they had some of the parameters too high. And so I just looked at him and I was like, it, it felt good, but it felt weird too. And I, I couldn't talk. So they, there are, there are many different settings that they have to use and they had to turn those down for me um, so that my voice would come back on. And also I couldn't move my eyes. So it, it's a very, very odd thing. It, it's kind of like Frankenstein, you know, <laughs> it's like they put this thing in there and then they have to try to figure out um, exactly what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. So now uh, you mentioned something called dyskinesia. Could you explain that more for the people who aren't aware of it? It's uh, yes, it's um, involuntary movements that um, are caused mainly by over-medication of Parkinson's. It's not really caused by Parkinson's itself. It can be caused if your DBS settings are too high or your medication is uh, too often or too much. And it's a very tricky game to get it exactly right. Um, so because my system has been in so long, I've had to take a little bit more medication than what I did before. And it's caused me to have some dyskinesias, but I would rather be able to move and move around than not move at all. I've had both and I would, I would rather move around too much than not at all. Right. So um, you, uh, how soon after the, um, the DBS procedure, 
did you start uh, running marathons? Um, it would have been, I had the DBS in 2004 in September and I ran my first, first marathon um, December, 2011. So I ran, I started running races in 2010. So about six years after, and I um, started with like a 5k, then went to a 10k, then half and full. Um, so my very first marathon was in November, December of 2011. And uh, what got you started on that path? Um, I had always been a runner. I was a runner in high school. And uh, I ran when my kids were little, but nowhere near, I, you know, they didn't have the technology, all the watches that they have now and things that kept track of your miles. So I really had no idea, you know, we would measure how far I would run with the car because that was really the only way we had to figure out how far things were. So um, I didn't really know how much I was running. I was just doing it for enjoyment. And I had never run a race until after I had Parkinson's. and. Um, my my son was in the Marines at the time and he came home on leave and we went to a, a local park and we went for a walk. And he was like, mom, when was the last time you ran? And he was like, I don't run anymore. I said, I have Parkinson's, there's no way I can run. And he was like, well, what if we just run from this pole to that pole and see if you can do it? And he was right there with me. So I knew it was safe. And so I tried it and it just, turned on something in my brain that felt so good. It was like amphetamines, you know, the running, I just felt so good. And it just took off from there. And then on the way home, there was a big, in this little park that we were in, there was a big sign that said, um, Hazlitt 5k. And it was like at Thanksgiving time. And I said, I'm going to run that 5k. And I had never run a race ever. He said, you don't even know how far 5K is. And I, <laughs> and I was like, I don't, but it's a family run, so it can't be real far, you know? So we went out and figured out how far the 5K was and ran that race. It was about two months prior to that, trained for it every day and, and ran that 5K. And that just turned into every other race that I ran, so... So uh, how did it feel completing that first race? It was awesome. It was really awesome. My um, husband was there. All of my children are, were in the military. So a lot of them were gone most of the time at that point, by the time I ran the first 5K. Um, and so he was there. And I remember my only goal was to run the whole thing. And I did. Um, a 5K is 3.1 miles. And so now that doesn't seem far at all to me, but at that time it did. And I remember thinking, I don't know, I guess I thought you had to run the whole thing. Like you had to be capable of it. I don't know if I thought somebody would come out and whip you if you didn't or what, but <laughs> I didn't realize that people walked in a race or did whatever they wanted to do. And so I was convinced that you had to run. And so I went out and practiced until I could run all three miles. So that was my experience with my first 5k. And then obviously I haven't been able to completely run a whole marathon without walking a little bit, but, but I've at least built up to that. So, so, uh, at this point, um, how long have you been running? How many races have you done? 
you know, I really haven't kept track of all of my races, but I've run 102 marathons since 2011 and I've run over 200 half marathons. So it's got to be probably a thousand, probably a thousand races. I would think between five, 10 Ks, I've run two 50 milers and a 24 hour race. Um, those days are behind me. I, I can't run that much anymore. I get too exhausted, but, um, I did just run the Boston marathon with my son who, um, uh, was the one that got me running to begin with. So that was really awesome. Um, it was kind of like it went full circle because he's the one that got me to run again. So it was, it was really awesome. I know, uh, that you had a goal of doing a hundred marathons. Yeah. Uh, what did it feel like when uh, you completed that um, that goal? It was terrific. There was probably a hundred people there at the finish line that were waiting for me, and I didn't know that that was going to happen. It was in my, you know, home area of Fort Worth, and. So I have a lot of friends that live there and they had like a big party for me at the end. And it was just, even if there hadn't been anybody there at the finish line, it would have been, it was a goal that I never really, I thought about it, but I never really thought I would complete it. I really thought that I would probably be in a wheelchair at this point and not be able to run. So um, I think a lot of it mentally is what you believe that you can do, regardless of what your condition is. Um, because there's a lot of things that, you know, doctors didn't think I would even be able to run anymore at all. And I still can, um, all these years later, but I think a lot of it is what I think up here, not what my condition is. Um, now here's, I'm going to hit you with a few philosophical questions. So, um, so now you're you're running right so i mm-hmm. i guess technically you're a runner right yeah i guess yeah. so yeah <laughs> um, what like if you can think back to like around the time of your diagnosis or before that when you were just kind of running for fun mm-hmm. was there something in you that ever thought you could be the runner or was there something that you wanted to be that? I remember before I had Parkinson's, I had thought that I would train to run a marathon. I wanted to run the Dallas marathon. So that was before I was even diagnosed. And I remember running around, I run at the local track over here that uh, not a school track. It's actually the Texas motor speedway, which is for NASCAR races. Well, outside of it, there's a huge five mile track. So that's what I would use. And I still do use to run on. There's not much traffic over there. Um, And so you don't even really have to wear a watch because you know, it's exactly five miles around the outside. And I had only gotten to the point where I could run a five mile loop. And I realized to run a marathon, I would have to run that five times plus a mile. And I, I remember thinking, this is crazy. I'm never going to be able to do this, you know? And then I found out about my Parkinson's diagnosis and had to take a big break from running. And I, so I 
of course, didn't, didn't do it. But then when I turned philosophically, like you said, when I turned my thinking around and thought, if I can run this one time, I can run it five times. It's just going to take training and practice. And that was what turned it around. Now in my mind, I think that we can basically do anything that we want to do. Um, it may be a different way than other people do it. Like I'm not a real fast runner, but I complete, I complete the distance. And I think that's, that is actually kind of like, it was a lesson for me. And I try to make it a lesson for others that kind of like, you have to be kind to yourself, what you say to yourself, because you're always listening. So you have to like talk to yourself the same way that you would if you were trying to inspire or cheer somebody else up. Um, so like uh, you mentioned, you're competitive, obviously, if you're yeah. any kind of athlete that uh, comes into play. But there's, um, there's a small hint of stubbornness, you have to be a little bit stubborn, right? Yeah, yes. And where do you think that comes from? Or when did you think that got uh, switched on? Uh, I'd never really been, I guess I've always been sort of competitive, but really not like with sports and things like that. Um, I really think that after the DBS is when that kind of got switched on that competitive. But when I think back, way back to when I was in like, elementary school like kindergarten I would race all the other little boys like on on the playground when I was a little girl and you know here I was with a dress on and everything and all these little boys and I would beat them in the race so I was a fast runner even back then I just um I guess I always kind of had that competitive edge it just had to be brought out of me and um there's something about being told that you can't do something that makes you really want to do it. <laughs> and I've had that happen before as well. Um, unfortunately, when I was training for the full marathon, I'd already run a half. And my husband said, I don't know about this. He said, I don't, he, he wasn't trying to be um, a downer. He just said, I don't know about running a full marathon with Parkinson's. He said, he's afraid I was going to get hurt. Um, and right then I was like, you know, how dare he, I'm, I'm definitely going to go out there and do it. So <laughs> that kind of spurred me on. I think everyone has their own, their own thing that kind of makes them be competitive. And that was mine. When people tell me that I can't do things, I'm going to make sure that I can. Um, so knowing what you know now and all you've been through, um, would you say, like, what, what is your feeling on Parkinson's? I mean, I know, obviously, there's, we all know about the bad stuff and the, you know, but I mean, what do you think about the actual disease and how it's impacted your life? Well, um, I used to always think, like, I think 
my mom or somebody said to me, it's like, you're trying to outrun this illness. You're, it's like, you're trying to outrun Parkinson's. I was like, yeah. So, you know, that it's actually been a good thing for me, not a bad thing. Um, but I realized that you have to, as difficult as it is, for me anyway, I've had to not let Parkinson's be in the front seat. I've had to make it be in the back seat. Um, I'm not really super involved in a lot of Parkinson's groups. Um, I, because I've tried not to let it be the focal point of my life. Um, mainly because when I did let it become the focal point of my life, it just took over. And I felt like at that point is when I was still laying in bed and feeling sorry for myself and not doing the things that I needed to do to have a successful and happy life. So um, I tried to make it be uh, in the back seat, not the front seat driver. And that's, that's kind of how I feel, even though I, I, I think it's a despicable and horrible disease. And I, I really do. Um, I, I don't let it, I don't let it be in the forefront anymore like I used to. Um, so last question, what would your advice be for people who have been newly diagnosed with Parkinson's or are going through any type of adversity? Because really it's all the same. We just have different labels for it. It is all the same. Um, I think that you need to get a plan. If you find out that you have whatever it is that you have wrong, you have to get a plan and you have to decide that you're going to make the best of your life with it. And I know, especially with Parkinson's and illnesses like that, it's difficult because you're, it's, it's, it's not it, like I said, the lack of dopamine, um, so you don't automatically just have this feel-good chemical there that's that's waiting to help you. So you have to constantly think about it and you have to work really hard at it. Um, and I think do your research, find out everything you can about your condition and what things will help. And just so that you don't feel helpless. Because I think that was my biggest problem is I felt helpless. I felt like this disease was just gonna take over and I had no choice in the matter, but that's not true. You always have, you always have a choice and boy, I have seen that some um, marathons that I've gone to and they have, they have people like me and people that have um, lost limbs and things like that, that go out there and run. And I always think to myself, if that guy can run and he's missing say two limbs and whatever's happened and here I am, I have all of my limbs. They may not always work correctly together it's very true. There's always somebody that's, that's got it harder than you do. And I feel like you have to just, you know, keep trying your best. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you, Rhonda, for taking the time to speak with me. It was a pleasure. Well, it was a pleasure to speak with you, Mark. I really appreciate you doing this. Yeah. Okay. Have an awesome day. You too.